Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Is There There There, the graphic machine podcast that goes beneath the surface of marketing to tell you what's going on in the world and why you should care about it. I'm Patience Jones, with me is Brian Jones. Hello. And this week, the episode is the Trends Edition, Volume 1. I wanted to call it Volume 400. (laughs) Since it was from the future, I was roundly vetoed. But we went back and we're back to one. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We're back. Number one. So what we thought we'd do, both in honor of leap year, kind of, and also because it's February and everybody just kind of needs a little mix up. A little reboot. Yeah. Is to talk about um, some trends that are going on a little bit more rapid fire style than we normally do. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) Speak for yourself. <laughs> I was in the future already. I don't yeah, even know what you're talking already about. Already on episode 400. Yes. That's right. So, uh, Brian, do you want to start us off with a trend that you've identified or something going on that will impact, have more longer term impacts well, over the next year? Sure. The first thing that I'm noticing is the Netflix had two big announcements uh, that came out recently that I think are important on a larger sense. The first one was the idea that they are allowing their recommendation engine to be not limited to your specific geographic region. And this is important because the idea that you would share some commonality with another person from another part of the world is something that has been gaining momentum online for quite a while. Um, But now this is the first major company to really come out and say borders are less important than maybe they once were. And maybe for general marketing, I think it's an opportunity to look at it and say, this is really pretty interesting how this could change the way that you think about who your customer base is, what their interest are and how they relate to other people outside of their immediate location. So this is when you go onto Netflix and it says, um, you may also enjoy. Right. So previously it was only pulling from people, in, was it in your country? In your or? country or even more locally, depending on the size of your country. So oh, wow. they did this because when they moved into new countries, they were finding that Japan was the one that sort of kicked it off, was that even though they were relatively new, the recommendations pool was quite small. Uh. So people were having a hard time finding the content and in terms of other people may like and then suggestions. So they decided, what if we change our algorithm to incorporate a larger part of the world? And they found that there was a there was actually a lot more relationship among different parts of the world than they had previously thought. That's cool. That's pretty cool. I would be really interested to find out what, what I may like if you take into account all the recommendations of every Netflix user. Fair enough. That's cool. The second thing coming out of Netflix is they are finally getting rid of their custom servers that they ran themselves for years and years, and all their data will be running off of Amazon's, their competitors' uh, servers. <gasps> I know. <gasps> But what's really cool about this is kind of what, again, getting into what that means for marketing is do what you're good at. Netflix was just not good at running servers. And Amazon is really good, at least most of the time, (laughs) at running their servers or at least have the the team in place to be better at it than, than others. And I think that this is something that can be counterintuitive sometimes that you feel like you have to have every aspect of your company inside the four walls of your organization. And getting into that sort of borderless idea, this is true both in the way that you manage our services, but also in the way that we think about our customer base. It's time has come. And I think that if Netflix can be okay with this, then maybe, you know, we can too. (laughs) As Netflix goes, so goes the rest of the world. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Patience? Kind of in the same vein, but not really. The issues of web accessibility. And if you're not familiar with what that term means, it it refers to the ability of 
people who have any type of disability, be it uh, visual, physical, auditory, to be able to have a robust web experience, just the same as if they did not have those disabilities. So the original guidelines that came out, I think, in 2003, list things that you're supposed to do and not do, both in the design and the programming of websites to make them more accessible. Those guidelines have not been substantially updated since 2003. They don't... Not much has changed since then, right? No. I mean, a little thing called mobile. Well, let's just leave it at their guidelines from 2003. Yes. And it's not the law that you have to follow these. However, federal government websites and any websites that are funded by federal government money are supposed to comply with them unless there's some reason that they can't. So originally, the Department of Justice had said that they were going to be releasing actual legal requirements for non-governmental websites, I think in 2014. Surprise, that did not come to pass. And now they're estimating that they will have those guidelines for non-government websites in 2018. However, in early 2016, which is this year, they're going to start requiring state and local governments to comply with these guidelines that are going to be released by DOJ based on the 2003 guidelines, hopefully updated. So you will start <laughs> Or at to least from <laughs> five years ago, uh, sort of. Uh, I know. Yeah. It's, it does such a disservice to both people who are needing accessibility and people who are not needing accessibility accessibility, having a set of guidelines that makes it so that people who need accessibility actually in practice have a substandard experience is not great. You will start to see more sites being concerned with accessibility. These regulations are going to start coming out. So everybody really needs to be aware of what they say, thinking about ways to be compliant with those regulations, but also to continue to deliver good web experiences. So do you think that uh, we're going to see a lot of alternate versions? Because it seems like that's the natural way that places like to solve these problems is because a lot of times the to your point like the the updates happen so infrequently that the guidelines become so restrictive that new technologies that come onto the market have no way of being absorbed into them you have to create these alternate experiences but then is that also a lesser experience i don't think that the doj will view a company having like well this is our accessible website and this is our non-accessible website for everybody else i don't think that they'll accept that as being compliant with regulations i think they'll say this is what you have to do period my hope though is that enough people who know about these things are submitting comments to DOJ and there's actually a link we'll put on our website for how to do that about what's technically possible what's desirable that's that's my hope well, I think we'll probably see is that there will be, depending on if you're, we already have uh, components in place for vision impaired, um, but I think for things that are more nuanced, like colorblindness and other things that are make browsing the web uh, equally difficult. Do you think that this will apply then further into mobile applications, or do you think that that's probably still not necessarily on anybody's radar at this point? I think it's probably not on the regulator's <laughs> radar. 2003. <laughs> yeah, I think if it's taken 12 years to get, or by that time will have taken 15 years to get it for like desktop top worldwide web sites on Netscape. I think it's going to be a while. while. Yeah, I think that's I actually think the mobile apps are something that will be better self-policed by private companies, you know, developers who say this is how we've done this to meet these concerns. All right, Brian Jones, you're up. My next one is for a little service that not many people will know about, but is responsible for the largest distribution of email online. And it is Mandrel. Mandrel is a pet project, if you will, of MailChimp, which is a company 
company that a lot of people have heard about. They're an email marketing service. And over the years, they built their own infrastructure to deliver email. And what they did is they just sort of made that available on a very inexpensive, cheap subscription level to help other people to deliver their emails, even if they weren't using the MailChimp system. So what is happening now is that Mandrill is going away as its own standalone product and is becoming an add-on to a subscribers of MailChimp. So essentially, they're bringing people or forcing people into the MailChimp experience. By and large, you may or may not be affected by this, but what it, the reason why I found it interesting was the idea that pet project becoming something that becomes your breadwinner in a way. And it's something that companies can often have a hard time devoting resources to because they can be so easily become boondoggles. They can become things that don't go anywhere. They don't have a direction. But this is a pretty good example of one where it was a core technology. It's something that wasn't necessarily pretty or exciting through constant effort and shepherding. It became something that was really valuable to them. Is it something that could be replicated by another company if they had enough money? This particular service or this service actually exists from a variety of other providers that are out there. It was just that Mandrill was like such a super simple experience and it was like amazingly easy to integrate. Um, So do you think that MailChimp is in any way shooting themselves in the foot by bringing it under their own umbrella? I think that they probably recognize that there's more value. They can actually bring more people into the the MailChimp and grow their subscriber base, is my guess, by making it a, not an option to not have them be subscribers. Gotcha. I'm interested to see how that will. I mean, I think short term, yeah, they probably are shooting themselves in the foot, but longer term, I totally get why they're doing it. And it could be, too, that they just don't want to maintain two properties that yeah. aren't more closely interrelated with one another. Are they calling it like Mandrill by MailChimp? Or? Oh, it already is, but oh, it's okay. just sort of like, what's next for you, PJ? So as you may have heard, there's an election this year. No, uh, I haven't seen any ads for that. I, well, and that's that's my point, is you are about to. If you haven't, you're going to start. One of the things that we know is true is that in an election cycle, companies are less likely to spend money on anything that they don't absolutely have to spend money on because they're not sure who's going to be in charge. They're not sure what the tax implications of a new regime are going to be, what the employment implications are. We know that that's true. When you're thinking about your clients' marketing budgets, understand that it's going to be smaller than it would be in other years. But the additional... Cluster what's it? <laughs> the cluster the cluster what's it of this is that not only are you operating with a smaller budget, but you're operating with a much more saturated marketing environment. Every time you turn around, there is a sign, a TV ad, a radio ad, something that's demanding your attention for this campaign. Do you think it's also one of those things too where the words that you use in any other year wouldn't mean as much to people, yes. but people are already like so amped up that depending on the language that you use, you could be inadvertently endorsing or... Oh, absolutely. 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 I think what you'll start to see, born out of necessity, is very creative ways for reaching customers and breaking through that election cycle noise. In the past, we've seen companies do ads that are parodies of election ads. And I think people are kind of, they liked them then. I think they're kind of saturated now. And they're so annoyed by this election in general that, you know, having more distance between your company and the election is probably a good idea. But I'm I'm excited to see the ways that, that companies can do that, both on a limited budget and with all of these other competing factors. I think there's a lot of creative opportunities in there to distance yourself, to your point about the noise and 
that maybe the the point is to go more to go quieter instead of trying to go uh, noisier. Again, counterintuitive, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Speak softly and carry a big stick. Yeah. Though I'm not sure I think that was what the stick is remains to be seen. I suppose. Fair enough. All right, Brian. Google is making a transition away from for desktop search engine uh, on the right rail of the search results page. They, for a long time, they've had pay-per-click ads, which are paid advertisements for people that bid on things for various keywords, that sort of thing. They have decided to remove that from the right side of those search results. So there will be the organic results, which are the ones that come up on the lower part of the screen. And on the upper part of the screen, they will continue to have the ads. There's been a lot of discussion about what does this mean? Does this make search engine optimization or the way that we think about pay-per-click ads being more difficult to get your word out? I actually think it's just a reflection of where the market is and that these ads on the right actually weren't doing anything and weren't necessary because I can promise you that Google wouldn't do anything to not make more money. <laughs> Especially now that their ad it's engine doing no harm. As, as the ad engine is driving the bulk of their yeah. their revenue for the alphabet. Is the thought that the organic and the paid top section will just span the width or are they going to put something else on the right side? Remains to be seen. Right now, nothing is there. I actually think a lot of these ads are getting found on content sites that Google yeah. also places their ads. So I, my bet is that that's actually a more lucrative source of revenue for them and that the right rail was just creating clutter and confusion. Yeah, well, and this kind of blank space that your eyes don't want to go to because you know what's there. Also, the desktop market is just not the bulk of their market now. So I think it's a streamlining of the effort so that mobile and desktop have more in common with each other. Is there a cap, do you think, that Google will put on the number of paid ads at the top? I think it depends on how how their quarter is going. But yeah, uh, yeah. for now, it seems like it has increased some. But it's yeah. it's still that's just anecdotal right now. I can easily imagine like the first page will be all paid ads and then you click through. And, yeah. I think if they do that, it has to probably be more randomized because what they don't want to do is create a predictable experience that people then true. compensate for. What do you have? Cool. PJ? Privacy going to be an issue. Continue to be an issue. I think a few desktops. It, yeah. Whatevs. I think that people will be less likely to share their personal information, but more importantly for this trend, they will be less likely to share what their emotional states are. They will skew toward being much more private about their thoughts, how they're feeling about something. And so this trend that you've seen in the past like three years of putting emotional states on products, so like pillows with hashtag happy or my coffee mug that says I'm not a morning person. All of that kind of stuff that at one point was somewhat ironic because here's this blatant expression of how you're quote unquote feeling. You would never just put that out in public, but here it is on my coffee mug. That's no longer ironic in any way, shape or form. I can probably tell how you're feeling with any piece of data at any given time. So I think that people are going to be much more protective of that. And those types of products and designs and greeting cards and whatnot are going to fall out of favor. Do you think though, I mean, especially with yesterday's release of Facebook's emoticons or emoji on the bottom of the post, I actually think those are going to be pretty successful. Um, it seems like, you know, it's hard to, it's really too soon to see how people are responding to them. There have been some memes around uh, them about being confused, but it seems like it's pretty well thought out. It doesn't feel as clumsy as some of the transitions we've seen on other social platforms. But do you think that that flies in the face a little bit of what you're talking about? or is I don't think so. I think it's too baby parallel tracks. I think people 
who are using a lot of emoticons on Facebook, they're not buying the products that say hashtag smile anyway, because what they're interested in is personalization. They choose the emoticon. They choose the emoji based on that minute and what they're feeling, and it's personal to them. What the audience is for these other types of mass market, quote unquote, customized products are not using emoji and emoticons. They skew slightly older. So hashtag next item. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of targeting, uh, that was actually the the big thing that I I know has grown in popularity and there's a variety of services that are out there, but really getting into the notion that having content and sharing it was sort of stage one, but now we're sort of on to stage two or stage 400 to to extend the the metaphor from earlier. But uh, we're now to the point where you need to think about when you're sharing a piece of content, who do you want to reach? And that even within your audience, you're probably going to have to segment that down from time to time. There are tools within a lot of the social platforms where now you can begin to share to specific segments of your audience. Um, Facebook Share is definitely one of them that's uh, happening there where you can boost your content from a page provider to a more niche component so that you have the best chance of being seen by them, but it's less about broad spectrum publications. So I feel like that plays out into the totality of your marketing where you're thinking about, oh, I have this idea, but I don't need it to go out to everyone, I just need to reach the 400 people that are likely to care about this idea. Mm -hmm. And that's actually true. There is a really, for me, it's sort of the death of the broad spectrum appeal and the beginning of only targeted campaigns. That would be great. Less clutter. Exactly. Well, and it's also like you end up saying nothing by trying to say something that appeals to everyone. Yes. Jack of all trades, master of none. So what what do you have now? Uh, Spanish language. Espanol. Um, So by current estimates are that by the year 2050, about 30% of the United States will be fluent Spanish speakers. Doesn't mean those people won't also speak English. It just means they will be fluent in Spanish. What I think you will start to see is more of a integration of Spanish language in English language marketing and advertisements. Right now, if you're going to do a Spanish language campaign, it's usually either the English campaign translated or you hire a separate agency to do a separate Spanish language initiative. What you'll start to see more of is what you see in Canada, which is where you have in one notice or in one ad, it's both English and in Canada, it's French, but here it would be. English and Spanish. And I don't, by that, I don't mean that you don't take into account all of the cultural factors and implications of a Spanish speaking market and you just like make it the same, the same. But I think you start thinking about all of those factors in the same way that you think about all of the quote unquote traditional factors. And seeing Spanish language and is not unusual. And that I think is the first step of that, which we is already is already happening and has happened. Exactly. It is not an afterthought. Brian. Speaking of uh, the transformation of retail, which we were a little bit earlier and through hashtag retail smiley face is that the idea for retail has long been having one having products and getting as many people to buy that same product over and over and over again. But in the wake of uh, retail reports from big, big boxes like Walmart and Best Buy having somewhat lackluster sales results, it's beginning to show that people are far more interested in the idea of instant gratification, buying services and experiences, and really having customized and unique products that they buy. And that seems to be at odds with the model that you often find inside of a big box store where the whole point is to make it the most homogenized component that you can get so that 
it is the cheapest for the store to offer, and then it's all based upon the price, which is a still a market segment, and that isn't going to go away. It's more just that big retailers are going to continue to face a challenge, and that challenge is an opportunity for other kinds of retailers that or people that are selling services or experiences to see that they can grab maybe more of the dollars on the market than they might have been able to in the past, that there's definitely a growing segment of those, especially in younger audiences, to have that kind of experience. So big box stores have been kind of a destination for people? They're more of a hub um, okay. where you went there and they've tried a bunch of things. Like Best Buy has tried breaking down its store uh, store platform to be sub stores. Uh, so you have a Samsung store, you have an Apple store, you mm-hmm. have a variety of other retailers that sort of set up shop there. At the end of the day, it's still pretty much the same thing. It's just smaller bits inside of the larger bit. And it doesn't really make it more custom or unique. It's just smaller homogenized components. <laughs> this is true. And I you know, I think their locations too and the sort of unforgivingly large floor plate is yeah. kind of making it hard for people to even if they even if they were to change 100% of their their model, their business model, it doesn't change the experience of the store and I think that is actually where they face the biggest uh, issues. And you look at companies like Target which are exploring smaller floor plates uh, to maybe counter this movement. I think is where you're going to see they're going to try that. What do you have? There is a PhD student at MIT. She's getting her PhD in political science. Her name is Marika Landau-Wells, and she is studying how people perceive threats posed by others' identities or ideology. And what she wants to do is take her research and apply it to political candidates and political campaigns to study them. For instance, when somebody says, I believe that uh, fiscal policy should be X, what is it from a neuroscience standpoint that happens in our brain when we feel that that's threatening? What's going on? So if we can understand that, then we can understand how better to present our ideas, how to craft our arguments, how to anticipate people's reactions. And that, of course, will be useful in marketing and just really interesting. Okay, so then I will close out with a campaign that women are doing in France on Twitter. It's a hashtag. We'll put it on the site. It translates to if women talked like men. And what women in France are doing are putting comments up on Twitter that are things that have been said about them or that they have heard, but changing the subject of the comment to a man. So for instance, something like, you know, can you believe Jack got that promotion? He must have slept his way to the top. You will have to, if you don't speak French, you're going to have to translate it, but it's worth going and, and seeing. I think it's pretty great. It may not have the uh, the net effect that they want, but uh, yeah, it's... Uh, but what do you mean? <laughs> no, I think that... Uh, there's been some studies in the past, and I'll see if I can dig that up, about where this has been tried and that men don't negatively respond to this. So it is a... So they're like, yeah, I slept my way to the top. Pretty much, yeah. Maybe, hmm, this is troubling. Maybe then what we have to do is instead of presenting it that way, we have to start... Oh, I really don't want to do that. We have to start taking on the comments in the same way. So if you can't change them being said, then maybe you need to be like, yeah, I slept my way to the top. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah, I don't think that's, Just don't I don't think do it's that. better. So. Punch him in the face. <laughs> Always the answer. Smash him with the phone. Yes. 
We want to thank everybody for listening today, and we hope that you've enjoyed our slightly more rapid-fire experience for our trends report. Please follow us on facebook.com slash Inc., where we keep a show posting for each of the shows, and we hope to hear some feedback and comments on the show. At their podcast is the Twitter handle of the show, and at Graphic Machine is the agency's handle for, on Twitter as well. We look forward to speaking to you next week. Have a good one.